So last week, on the first day of December, an abortion case was argued before the United States Supreme Court. The case is informally known as the Dobbs case and has to do with a Mississippi law that was passed in 2018 that bans abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. That law was almost immediately struck down by the courts because it conflicted with prior court decisions. Specifically, this new law conflicted both with the 1973 Roe Supreme Court case as well as the 1992 Casey Supreme Court case. And then earlier this year in May, the Supreme Court agreed to hear the Dobbs case and arguments were made just here at the beginning of December. Now, if you followed any of the news about how the arguments went last week in front of the Supreme Court, it would not be a surprise to see Mississippi win the case and to see Roe and Casey overturned and abortion matters being left to the states to decide. But what I wanted to highlight to you this morning is a key legal doctrine that was used during the oral arguments for this case. Now, before I get there, I would be remiss if I didn't unequivocally state that abortion is an evil procedure. Abortion is the killing of a human life, a life created in the image of God. Science and the Bible both attest to the fact that human life begins at conception, and to end that life is an act of murder. As Christians, we are unashamedly pro-life. That means we stand up for the unborn, for those who can't speak for themselves. And being fully pro-life is more than just being anti-abortion. And if this case goes the way it's predicted to go, we're going to have to continue to live that out by supporting mothers in crisis pregnancies. It's much easier to rail and protest against an evil practice than it is to walk alongside women and families in distress and pain. But that's not the main point I'm trying to make here. I just couldn't go past that without saying something about abortion. What I wanted to share with you this morning is a key legal doctrine that was used during the oral arguments last week. How many of you, by a show of hands, are familiar with the legal doctrine of stare decisis? So I see a few hands in here, so it's not completely unknown. Well, I've become a bit of a legal nerd over the past few years, and I enjoy reading or listening to analysis and discussion of Supreme Court cases. Stare decisis is Latin for to stand by things decided. In short, it is the doctrine of, doctrine of precedent. Courts cite stare decisis when a matter has been previously brought to the court and a ruling already issued. And it is usually true that the Supreme Court will defer to its previous decisions, even if the correctness of the decision is in doubt. So last week in the Dobbs case, stare decisis was brought up to question whether or not the Supreme Court should overrule the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision and all the decisions that have fallen in line with it, which have stood for nearly 50 years. In fact, in just the past few years, we've seen state laws placing hospital admission requirements on abortion clinics struck down twice by the Supreme Court. So the advocates for the abortion clinic were essentially saying, you've already decided this, numerous times in fact, and a de facto ruling has already been issued. So why are we even arguing about this? That's what a stare decisis argument is based on. Prior judgments, prior rulings, It says, let's stand by things already decided. Well, when I read this passage in Colossians, I see Paul using a similar argument. 
a sort of starry, decisive argument. The passage for today begins with, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. He's telling the Colossian Christians to stand by things decided. Their salvation is secure in Christ. Judgment has already been made. A precedent has already been set. And we saw this clearly from last week's passage. We were dead in our trespasses before Christ. Each one of us has accumulated a debt of sin throughout our lives. And Pastor Daniel last week used a great example with the accounting calculator, those really large calculators with the receipt or the spool that continues to go and record every single transaction. And from our first moments on earth, our receipt of transgression and iniquity and sin has been getting longer and longer and longer. We tell a lie, it goes on to the receipt. We cheat, it goes on to the receipt. We lust or we anger in our heart and it gets added to our debt. We don't honor God as we ought. We don't love others as we love ourselves. And for any kids in the room, when we disobey our parents or teachers, it adds to our debt. Our record of debt just keeps going and going and going. But for those of us in Christ, that record of debt has been canceled in full. All of it. Sins past, present, and future. No matter how heinous or vile your sin, it was nailed to the cross along with our Savior. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, for you have already been judged. Stand by what has been decided. And that's what Paul's referring to when he says, therefore. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is the central message of Christianity. This is the gospel, the good news, that Jesus Christ fully God and fully man, has paid our debt to God by offering his sinless life on the cross as a substitute for you and for me and for all who would trust in him. Jesus Christ endured the punishment that we deserved. He paid the debt that we owe to God so that through him we might be made together alive with him. If this is something that you would like to know more about, I would love to talk to you about this after the service today, because this is the most important message I can share with you. And Paul wants the Christians in Colossae, having believed and trusted in the message of the gospel, to hold fast to that truth. I've titled today's sermon, Admonitions of an Apostle. This passage is a warning passage, similar to last week's warnings to not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. In our text today, the Apostle Paul gives the church four warnings or admonitions. First, he says, don't hold on to shadows. We see that in verses 16 and 17. Secondly, he says not to trust in spiritual experiences. We see that in verse 18. And then at the end of the passage, in verses 20 to 23, he tells them not to submit to man-made rules. Now, these are all admonitions in the negative sense. Don't do this. 
Don't hold on to shadows. Don't trust in spiritual, spiritual experiences. Don't submit to man-made rules. The final admonition is in the positive sense. Do this. It's an affirmative warning. It's this. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to Christ. And verse 19 is where we see that. So if you're taking notes today, these four points are going to be the outline of my sermon. So to begin, look with me, if you will, at verses 16 and 17. It reads, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The first thing Paul warns of here is don't hold on to shadows. Don't hold on to shadows because you already have the substance, the real thing. You have Christ. Let no one pass judgment on you because you have already been judged and have been found innocent in Christ. Paul is saying that the Colossian Christians shouldn't allow themselves to be judged based on their religious practices and particularly some religious practices that had to do with what they ate and drank and the days that they kept holy, the days that they worshipped on. Now, it's not exactly clear what Paul is referring to by food and drink, but most likely he has in mind the kosher laws of the Old Testament. The kosher laws of the Old Testament that said you could eat this food, this was clean food, and that you can't eat that food because that food is unclean. And it seems that some false teachers have come into this young church and they're trying to enforce these strict dietary restrictions. And as for the religious festivals, the new moon celebrations, and the Sabbath day, this is clearly a reference to the annual, monthly, and weekly holy days that were set aside in the Old Testament. So it seems like what's happening is that these false teachers have come into the Colossian church and they're judging these new Christians on Old Testament laws. They're essentially saying that unless you keep these strict dietary restrictions and the whole series of special religious holy days, you're not really a Christian. You might think you're a Christian, but you're not. You're not truly one of God's people. The false teachers are trying to proclaim a new judgment, a judgment meant to discriminate and to exclude these new Christians from the church. But Paul is here to say, don't listen to them. They have no power to do that. These Christians, they have already been judged. They can stand firm in what has already been decided. Their salvation is secure in Christ because judgment has already been made. A precedent has already been set. Now, is Paul saying that what God commanded in the past just doesn't matter anymore? Is he saying that we can just throw out the Old Testament because it doesn't matter to us anymore? Or perhaps he's saying, now that you're a Christian, you can just do whatever you want. God will forgive you. But no, I don't think that's what he's saying here at all. Rather than saying that the Colossians should just ignore what God previously said, Paul is saying that they need to understand these things in light of who Christ is and what he has already done. The Old Testament, to include its dietary restrictions and holy days, it takes on a whole new meaning 
when we examine it in the light of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You see, all of Scripture points forward to Jesus Christ. Everything that came before his birth, from the garden, the sin in the garden, to Abraham, to the nation of Israel, to the prophets, all of it bears witness to who Christ is and what he will do. Tim Keller has a great summary when he goes through several different Old Testament figures and shows how they were just shadows of the true and better Jesus. Here are just a few of his lines. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. And Jesus is the true and better Jonah who is cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Just as figures in the Old Testament were shadows of the real thing, so too were its food and ritual laws. And Paul is making a similar argument here when he says these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Shadows mean something. They show what's coming, what's on the way. But what's significant about the shadow isn't the shadow itself, but the substance. It's the person who casts that shadow. And Paul says here that the substance belongs to Jesus Christ. These Old Testament food laws that are apparently being demanded here, they were created to set apart God's people as holy. It was a matter of being marked out as clean rather than unclean in God's sight. But here Paul reminds the Colossians, and he reminds us in Christ, that God's people aren't set apart by the food that they eat. God's people are set apart by faith in Christ. We have been marked out as clean, not by the food we eat or don't eat, but by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. Now, as for the religious festivals, the new moon celebrations and the Sabbath day, in the Old Testament, these were important times for sacrifice. Numbers chapter 28 is one place where we see sacrifices commanded on the Sabbath, sacrifices commanded on the new moon, sacrifices commanded on the Passover, and at other religious festivals. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. This was an ongoing, continuous practice throughout the Old Testament. Because the sacrifice of animals didn't accomplish lasting forgiveness. But now, in Jesus Christ, we have no need of further sacrifices. His sacrificial death on the cross, for us, accomplished the forgiveness we needed for all time. There are no more sacrifices to be done. And therefore, there are no more special sacrificial holy days. And as Christians, we don't observe the traditional Jewish Sabbath. The Old Testament Sabbath was a day set aside to rest. And it was a day set aside to look forward to the coming rest provided by the Messiah. We now have that rest in Christ and all that he's accomplished for us. And so we worship on Sundays because of what's already been done. 
We worship on Sundays because that's the day Christ got up from the dead. It's the day his resurrection proved victory over sin and death. And there is no other day that we need to set aside. And of course, it's not really about the day itself, but rather what we do on that day. We gather and we worship. We come together as brothers and sisters in Christ and we worship our risen Lord. We proclaim his name and his gospel message of salvation. This is what it means for us to keep the Sabbath holy. These false teachers, they were trying to get the Colossian Christians to live in the shadows rather than in the full light of day in Christ Jesus. And I think this warning Paul gives is not just for them, but it's for us as well. Are we tempted to live in the shadows? Do we define our Christianity more by what we do than by who we know? Are you a Christian because you prayed a prayer, or because you walked an aisle, or because you were baptized? Does going to church make you a Christian? Does reading your Bible every day or tithing regularly make you a better Christian? For the children in the room, are you a Christian just because your parents are Christians? Many of those things are right and good, but none of them, none of those things make you a Christian or even define what it means to be a Christian. They are all a shadow because the substance of being a Christian is being someone who has repented of their sins and put their faith and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. We are Christians not because of what we do, but because of who we know. Don't let anyone judge you based on shadow keeping. And don't judge yourself on shadows either. You have already been judged on the substance of the matter. The only criteria that really matters is this. Do you know Jesus? And does he know you? So don't hold on to shadows. Hold fast to him who has saved you. Next we see here that Paul tells the Colossians not to trust in spiritual experiences. Verse 18 reads, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Having warned against shadows, Paul now warns against trusting in spiritual experiences. Back at the beginning of this letter, you might remember in chapter 1, Paul had given thanks to the Father because he said God had qualified the Colossian Christians. Paul had given thanks to the Father because he had qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. They are already qualified because of the redemption, the forgiveness of sins brought about by Jesus. But Paul now in verse 18 is warning the Colossians don't let these false teachers disqualify you for that prize. Don't let them disqualify you from that inheritance by tempting you to trust in your spiritual experiences rather than trusting in Christ. Paul describes these false teachers as people who insist on asceticism and worship of angels. Now, we're not entirely sure what Paul is referring to here, but it seems to be wrapped up in these spiritual experiences with asceticism 
Paul probably had in mind an extreme sort of fasting meant to bring about a mystical, spiritual vision. And perhaps in this case, visions of angels worshiping in heaven. Most commentators believe this isn't so much worshiping angels, rather it's worshiping like the angels worship God. A higher, more spiritual form of worship. An angelic version of worship. What's more is we see in the next phrase that these teachers, they love to go into great detail about all the things that they had seen in these visions. So this rigorous, extreme lifestyle of fasting was supposed to lead to angelic worship and detailed visions. This is what the false teachers were saying was necessary to the Christian life. And Paul is concerned that the Colossian Christians might be led astray by these super spiritual teachers. He's concerned that the Colossian Christians might feel like mere second-class Christians because they haven't experienced visions of angels. And in the second half of verse 18, we see that these teachers go on in detail about these visions puffed up with reason, without reason, by a sensuous mind. Paul says that these teachers, they're full of hot air. That's what the word means by puffed up. They are full of hot air. They are puffed up and they are full of themselves because of these great spiritual experiences that they've had. They have seen heavenly worship and they're proud of themselves for it. You know, we have several accounts in the Bible of people being given heavenly visions. And they didn't walk away from those experiences all puffed up about themselves. Think about the vision given to Isaiah, which we see in Isaiah chapter 6. He sees the Lord sitting upon a throne with six angelic beings around him. Is his response to get puffed up and think highly of himself? No. Rather, it's to respond, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. His response is humbling, not conceited. Likewise, Ezekiel is given a vision of the throne of God, surrounded by angels, which we see in Ezekiel chapter 1. When he's given the vision of the glory of the Lord, how does he respond? He falls down on his face. And when it's all over, all he can do is sit in utter silence for seven days, completely overwhelmed by what he's seen. A true spiritual experience that involves the living God does not lead to arrogance and pride. Rather, it leads to the humility that we see in Isaiah and Ezekiel. Humility that says, woe is me, for I have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And the Christian life should be one marked with humility, not arrogance. A proper view of our faith, that it is a gift of God and not our own doing, should humble us. We were dead in our sin, unable and unwilling to do anything about it. But God, being rich in mercy, reached down and saved us. It is by his grace that we have been saved. We have nothing to boast about. And any growth in Christ, any holiness in our lives, 
any spiritual experiences we might have, that's due to God's working in us. It's not a reason for us to be proud or puffed up. So the warning here in verse 18 is to not trust in spiritual experiences as proof of your faith. Any spiritual experiences that we begin to require and hold up as necessary evidence of what it really means to be a Christian is an attack on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and his word. We don't require subjective spiritual experiences in our own lives or in the lives of others. You don't have to speak in tongues or prophesy to qualify as a Christian. You don't have to have some special emotional experience while you're singing worship songs. You don't need to hear God speak to you during your quiet time. What qualifies you as a Christian is faith in Christ and what he has accomplished. Remember, you have already been judged and you have already been qualified. Trust in him, not in your spiritual experiences. Well, third, not only does Paul tell the Colossians not to hold on to shadows and not to trust in spiritual experiences, but also he says, don't submit to man-made rules. Look with me at verses 20 to 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In this last section of our text today, we see that Paul's admonition is to not submit to man-made rules. He says, don't submit to rules, man-made rules, like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And his first objection to this is that the Christians at Colossae have already died to the world. So why are they still trying to live according to its rules? Paul is pointing back here to the argument he made in the section we looked at last week, that the Colossians have died with Christ. Their sins were forgiven on the cross. And just as Jesus rose from the grave, they are now alive together with him. So Paul is reminding the Colossians that they have died to the elemental spirits of the world. And if you remember maybe from last week, this language of elemental spirits is referring to satanic, demonic powers and authorities. And indeed, these spirits did hold sway and authority over the Colossians as long as they were slaves to sin. But now that they have died with Christ, they are free from sin and from its power. They are free from the accusations of the enemy. So Paul is saying, don't go back to slavery. Don't submit to the man-made rules of this world. Now, I think it's clear here that Paul is talking specifically about religious man-made rules. He's not talking about civil rules or laws like speed limits. He's not talking about laws against things like stealing or murder. It seems that he is again referring back to the Old Testament, 
with ritual purity and kosher food laws. But really, it's even beyond that, to this whole group of extra rules and regulations that were developed in the tradition of Judaism. I read that the Pharisees developed a system of 613 extra rules and regulations in addition to the Mosaic Law. Hundreds and hundreds of elaborate but petty rules for interpreting the law of God. And not only did they devise these hundreds of man-made rules, but they also elevated them to the level of Scripture, so that to break one of their rules was to violate the very law of God itself. Well, during his earthly ministry, Jesus was having none of that. He intentionally violated some of these man-made rules. For instance, he and his disciples plucked and ate heads of grain as they walked through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And Jesus, he performed uh, miraculous healings on the Sabbath. Both of these actions violated these pharisaical man-made rules. But Jesus didn't submit to these trivial and burdensome rules. And Paul, likewise, is telling the Colossians, don't submit to them. Now, man-made rules can be helpful, particularly in building a just society. And we have many useful laws and rules in this country to do just that. But when we're talking about Christianity, when we're talking about the church, it's God's laws that we need to be concerned with, not man-made rules. And we need to be careful that we are not being modern-day Pharisees. Being in a Baptist church, man-made rules about alcohol came to mind. Traditionally in America, many Baptist churches have made their own rules against drinking alcohol. In fact, a Baptist church that my family and I were a part of, members of, in North Carolina, actually had it written in their church constitution that all leaders must abstain from any alcohol. And while rules like these might have good intentions, it's drunkenness that the Bible prohibits, not alcohol altogether. We should primarily be concerned with God's law, not with man-made rules. And while rules like these, they might have the appearance of wisdom and religion and strictness, it says here they're of no good, no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. We see that in verse 23. Following these rules might make you look religious and upright on the outside, but they do nothing for the inside. Submitting to man-made rules does nothing to solve our real problem which is sin. Following man-made rules might make it look like we're clean, but they do nothing for the problem of sin. Jesus talked about this in Mark chapter 7, where he said, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things 
come from within, and they defile a person. So don't submit to rules that don't address the real problem, the problem of sin in our lives. And that even applies to the good practices we do. We can set up rules in our lives to make sure we read the Bible every day, that we pray before every meal, that our tithe is regularly debited from our bank account. And those are good and right things. But our problem is sin. It's not our lack of reading or praying or giving. The problem is with our heart, that we prefer to love ourselves than to love God, that we prefer to go our own way rather than to go God's way. And no matter what clever tricks and rules we come up with, they don't have the power to change our hearts. Only Jesus, only Jesus through his death on the cross can reach in and change our hearts by taking our heart and nailing it to the cross with him. And just as we died with him, we are given new life. He gives us new hearts. New hearts that don't need man-made rules to love him. New hearts that want to obey God, that want to love God, to love people, and to lead others to do the same. Christian, are there places where you are trying to please God by keeping the rules? Do you think that doing your daily Bible reading plan makes God happier with you? Do you think that God loves you because you don't drink alcohol? Do you think he loves you less because you haven't spent enough time in prayer? Well, let me tell you plainly, there is nothing you can do to make God happier with you, more in love with you than he already is. You cannot earn his love. You cannot increase his love for you. If you are in Christ, God loves you with the same powerful love that he has for his very own son. You have already been judged. You have already been qualified. You have already died and been made alive. So don't seek God's love by submitting to man-made rules. And this brings us to the fourth and final point. Paul admonishes us here to hold fast to Christ. Christ. We see this as the opposite of what he accuses the false teachers of in verse 19. So let's look there. It says, And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So we've seen three negative warnings. Don't hold on to shadows. Don't trust in spiritual experiences. Don't submit to man-made rules. This is now an affirmative warning. Do this. Hold fast to Christ. Paul is saying here that these false teachers are not holding fast to the head, who is Christ. Seeking to go their own way with shadows, spiritual experiences, and man-made rules, they have actually severed themselves from the only source of spiritual life, which is Christ himself. And Paul reminds the Colossians, it's Christ who holds the whole body together and feeds 
and nourishes it. It's God who causes the church collectively and you and I individually to grow. We have no independent access to spiritual nourishment. Jesus Christ is the only source for any spiritual growth. I'm reminded here of the picture Jesus gave in John chapter 15 of the vine and the branch. Jesus said there, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Our regular habits don't matter if we aren't holding fast to Christ. Our spiritual experiences don't matter if we aren't holding fast to Christ. Our religious practices, they don't matter if we aren't holding fast to Christ. We must look to him, the source of our salvation. We must continue to trust in his righteous life and substitutionary atoning death for us. We must believe in the message of the gospel because that's where we get true life and power, not in the things of this world. That's what it means to hold fast to Christ, to continue moment by moment and day by day to trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. So hold fast to Christ. Now, an important truth to remember here is that while we are indeed called to hold fast to Christ, the Bible also teaches that Christ holds fast to us. While as sinners saved by grace, we will inevitably take our eyes off of Christ and mess up from time to time, he will hold us fast to the end. Paul reminds us of this when he writes in Philippians, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We are called to hold fast to Christ. But take comfort that no matter your stumbles and falls, if you truly have been saved, he holds fast to you. We also see here that holding fast to Christ leads to growth. Each one of us, if we are Christians, should desire to grow in our faith, to become more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, to become mature in Christ, as we saw two weeks ago at the end of chapter 1. This is the idea of sanctification, the idea of gradual, growing righteousness in the lives of believers. And this growth only comes from God by holding fast to Christ. So how do we grow in Christ? Well, those spiritual practices that I mentioned before, like Bible reading, prayer, regularly worshiping with God's people, those are ways in which we can grow in Christ. We can't be saved by them. We can't earn his love by them. We can't make him happier with us by them. But spiritual practices like those can help us in holding fast to Christ. Reading the Bible can remind us of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Prayer can help us to remember our dependence on Christ 
for life and breath and our salvation. And worshiping with God's people can remind us of the love Christ has for his bride, the church. And another important takeaway here, and if you know me at all, you won't be surprised to hear this, is the role of the local church, the body of Christ in Christian maturity. Notice how it says, the body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. Now, I think most Christians, if I were to ask them, how do you grow as a Christian? They would answer with things like Bible reading, personal prayer, and righteous living. They would be focused on the individual things that they can do. And it does certainly include that. But if you thought about loving others in the church, loving the very people sitting around you right now, and being loved by others in the church? Do you think of your spiritual growth coming from forgiving your brother or sister in Christ? Or being forgiven by your brother or sister in Christ? Do you think of growth as coming from encouraging someone in the church or being encouraged by them? Do you think of growth coming from speaking the truth in love? To someone in the church or being spoken to in truth with love do you think of showing hospitality not because you're supposed to but as an expression of your growing love for god's people or of receiving the hospitality and the generosity of others growth comes from god it comes from holding fast to christ by believing in the gospel but the head nourishes the whole body together. We depend on one another to receive the growth that comes from God. It's the people sitting in this room with you right now and your life being built together with them through which growth happens and occurs by living out all the one another's of Scripture, loving one another, encouraging one another, guarding one another, showing hospitality to one another, forgiving one another. And I could keep going. Christian maturity comes from the head, who is Christ, through the body, which is the church, to each one of us. So hold fast to Christ. So in closing, let me remind you, don't hold on to shadows. Don't look to practices from the past that we're only there to point forward to Christ. You have already been judged and have been found innocent in Christ. Don't trust in spiritual experiences. You aren't a better or superior Christian or a worse Christian because of spiritual experiences. You have already been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And don't submit to man-made rules. A strict lifestyle may give the appearance of religiousness, but it doesn't address the root problem of sin. Only Christ can do that. And you have died to sin and are alive in Christ. So hold fast to Christ, knowing that he holds fast to you. Hold fast to Christ, from whom the whole body grows with the growth that is from God. Let's pray.